0: Acts two thirty seven through 38 Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Good Evening, it's good to be together once again this Lord's Day, and I invite you to be taking out your Bibles. We're going to be studying from them in a little bit of a different way than uh, is typical for us. We we're going. I was going. I wasn't going to say this, but Kyle asked me to start these question and answer nights. He really wanted me to do this, and then he misses the first one. <laughs> so uh, just. Uh, and he didn't ask a question. I got volunteer for that too. I asked him if he asked anything, and he even said no. But so I'm going to have to talk to him about that some more. But first of all, I am extremely grateful for anyone that did submit a question. I know this is a little bit different, and yet it's still going to be a way that we can learn. It's still going to be a way that we can study the Word of God together. And so I appreciate the question that anyone that might have submitted one. And I hope that everyone finds a benefit through this. I think asking questions is a really important part of the method of learning and teaching. And secondly, I have to just say, and I'm not trying to just butter you up, the questions I got were really excellent questions. They were very thoughtful, they were very mature questions, and I appreciate that very much. Just that. That's like a Bible nerd like me who likes studying the Bible and likes hunting down answers to Bible questions and Bible thoughts. That's uh, just something that I thoroughly enjoyed. And so I learned. And that's what I enjoy about these kinds of uh, methods of teaching where you ask questions, I get to learn by studying different things. And so the. Topics that you will see tonight, the questions, I will put them on the screen so you can read it and so you can understand where the question was coming from and where I was trying to, uh, how I'm trying to answer the question, things like that. You will see that these uh, cover a wide range of Bible subjects and topics and different passages of Scripture. And these are not all easy questions. So I hope that you will uh, take the answers that we submit and think about them, study them yourself. And if there's something that I say that doesn't sound quite right, please discuss that with me. It's something that uh, I can provide you with my notes uh, for what you can see that you can take home and study and see the process that I was trying to cover and and look at. And I ask that you would take those home and study it, think about it yourself and pray about it and think about it. how I might be able to improve. And so uh, that is also one reason why I wanted these questions submitted beforehand. So because this is not Stump Sean Knight. This is about us learning and and reasoning from the scriptures together. Another thing before we jump in is I I had nine questions submitted. And I may not sound like a lot, but that's a very good number. Uh, Nine questions that I got, and so some of these may not get answered tonight, at least publicly, Uh, not because I'm running away from it, but because we just may not have the time for it. Uh, They will be answered later publicly, but if you would like the answer, I have an answer that I can give to you uh, in a written format or something like that. So just know I'm not ignoring it. I answered every question and if we uh, just run out of time this evening, then I can provide you with those answers and we will I will address it in the next Q&A night. There's always something I try to do if I do these is save a little in case I run out and in case next time I don't get as many questions. So then I have something for next time. So uh, it just leaves you a little bit uh, wanting more. It's always a good rule of thumb. But then I hope tonight, after tonight, you will, you'll hear a question, you'll hear an answer that I might provide, and maybe you'll start thinking of other questions to ask. That is another benefit of this, is that you might think of something else, and you might want to go take uh, note of that and put it in the box right after tonight. And I would encourage you to do that. So be thinking tonight of more questions that you can ask uh, for the future. So I think that kind of introduces us uh, to everything before we jump right in. So I appreciate very much you being here and appreciate the encouragement we've had to be able to be together today. And so let us jump right in to look at some of these questions. Uh, One question I got was, what are some practical methods of personal evangelism aside from door knocking? And... I thought of several different things that we could think about with this. And I think the first is having leadership that prioritizes growth and evangelism. That's a really important thing. Before any tool is going to be effective, we need to prioritize it. We need to have a purpose. We need to recognize a mission that we have. And I think our leadership does, and I appreciate that very much. And then we also need to understand that not only do we have leadership that has a hand in uh, embracing our role and mission to spread the gospel, we need to also recognize each individual's responsibility in this. In Matthew, the 28th chapter, as Jesus was with His apostles, He didn't give a lot of details in how uh, evangelism was to be done, but He did give responsibility to the disciples that might follow Him. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, He says, "...Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what you see is that Jesus, He says to His apostles that you need to go and make disciples. And then that's going to have a cyclical effect that you're going to have disciples that are made and then you're going to teach them and then they are going to continue to carry that out. They are going to embrace this responsibility of sharing the gospel. That's what you see unfold in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, as the uh, apostles had been preaching in Jerusalem, and then you have uh, the death of Stephen, you have uh, Saul's persecution that was beginning to take place and ramp up in Judea and Jerusalem and the surrounding area in Acts chapter 8 and in verse 4 says, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And so the disciples that had been there in Jerusalem, the church that had been in Jerusalem when they were scattered, they all took this responsibility very personally. And so I think that's something that we have to do before we can talk about any kind of method or tool that might be at our disposal, we have to all accept our individual responsibility. It's not just the preacher's job. It's not just leadership job. It's everyone's job. And embracing that, I think, is necessary for success. And so, what do we do? Some ways to... Be effective in evangelism. How can we do some things? What are some things that we can do besides just going knocking on doors, inviting people to come to a gospel meeting or to come to a family vacation Bible school? Things that we might be hosting. What can we do? Well, as I think many of you know, we have been using what is called meetup.com. That is a website where you can find... Hobbies and interest if you have any kind of hobby, if you're into knitting or uh, quilting, I think Jeremy was going to look for a quilting group. He told me that. So uh, if you are interested in anything like that, then you can use meetup.com and find a meetup group. And you just meet up and you have some something in common and you do something together. Well, you can use that for Bible study. That's what we've been doing in Derby. And... Appreciate very much those who come and, and participate in that. And you can find people who are already genuinely interested in something. And that's what I, I find very helpful about that. It kind of weeds out some things. If you're just going and knocking on someone's door, you hope someone answers. You hope someone's not very mean to you. You just hope someone is actually kind to you and you don't want them to feel like you have bothered them. And then you You just don't know if they're going to have any kind of interest in talking about the Bible or church. They might laugh at you or they might do worse to you and tell you to get off their property. Meetup.com takes away some of those kinds of things where you can find people who are genuinely interested in talking about the Bible. In the book of Acts, you see that there is a pattern. As another thing that you could do is... Have something in your home. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 42, after the apostles had been released from prison, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 42, it says that every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. From house to house. Something I find to be very effective and I've done this from time to time is open your home. To your neighbors. And you can call it a neighborhood Bible study or you can just have a Bible reading. Uh, I've done that before where you just say, okay, we're going to set Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. Anyone in my neighborhood that I might know and want to invite, invite them to come over and let's just read the scriptures. I mean, that's a huge step. If you have ever tried to teach somebody, just getting a time and a place and getting them to open up the Bible, that's a huge first step. And if you just open up your home and say, hey, come on over at my, my house, 7 o'clock Tuesday night. We're just going to read the Bible. We're not going to have teaching. It's not, We're just going to read what the Bible says. What I love about that approach is it's not that you're trying to hide anything. It's the exact opposite. That we're elevating the Word of God. That we are going to see what the Bible says. Let's get rid of any of our opinions and our thoughts about something. Let's simply open the book. And let's see what it says. You could easily do that. And you... If that is too much, if that's too fearful or something like that, personal evangelism is is one of those things that we can all have a little bit of timidity at some point in time. Ask for someone to help you. Ask for someone that lives in the same town or in the same neighborhood that might go to church here. Ask them to take part in this. Work together. You don't have to do it just all on your own. Ask me or one of the elders or some of the deacons to come and to participate. I'm sure many of us would be willing to do so. Acts chapter 6 and verse 4 gives us another idea and something that we can, I think, forget and neglect when it comes to being effective in personal evangelism is we need to pray about it. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, The apostles said, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. If we want anything to be effective, it needs to be accompanied by prayer. We need to pray that our time and our efforts would be effective. We need to join whatever it is that we do with prayer. Then... something that I, and I can't take credit for this, but what is sometimes called team evangelism. And in Luke chapter 10, this is something that I have become very convicted about myself, is that personal evangelism, while it involves persons in a personal involvement, it doesn't have to be individual involvement. Or all by yourself, solo involvement. In fact, I think the scriptures teach the opposite. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 1, this might be something that is very subtle, but as Jesus was sending out his apostles in what we call the limited commission, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 1, now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs. You notice that? He sent them in pairs ahead of Him to every city and place where He Himself was going to come. You think about some in the book of Acts, especially some of the great preaching duos, pairs. In the opening chapters, you have Peter and John. They take a lot of the attention in Acts chapter 3, 4, 5, that section of the book of Acts. You think about... uh, Paul and Barnabas. Think about Paul and Timothy. Paul and Silas. You have pairs that go out and work together. You have Priscilla and Aquila who go and work together. They have the church that met in their home. A husband and wife team. You have people who band together to work together. I think that's really effective Whenever you're saying... Hey look, I understand that evangelism is hard and you're not going to have to do it alone. I'm going to work with you. I'm going let's be the next Paul and Barnabas or the next Paul and Timothy. Now we're going to work together to be involved in teaching people in our neighborhood and in our community. We can share sermons and Bible articles on social media, and it doesn't have to just come from preachers, it can come from any member, anyone that has social media that uses Facebook or email or anything that allows you to share information. We're, we're living in the post-COVID world. I think everyone know people didn't know what Zoom was until maybe two years ago, but If you don't want to have people in your home, guess what? You can have your friends and family join a Zoom Bible study. You could do that. Where you are studying the Scriptures together. But whatever you do, you might begin by writing names down of people that you know. People who are not Christians. Write down their name you can pray about them, pray for them, pray that they might be receptive to hearing God's Word. I think that's an important step in sharing the Gospel. Second question. This was one that I just don't think I'm going to be able to fully answer tonight. Uh, please explain the destruction of Jerusalem and So my answer is that I'm going to address this in a couple of weeks, uh, if if that is acceptable. Uh, Sunday, April 23rd, in the evening service, I plan to now preach on the destruction of Jerusalem. I think it is a fascinating subject. It is one that there are actually some false teachings that have come from the destruction of Jerusalem and its importance in history and things like that. And so. We will uh, visit that in a couple of weeks. So I think I talked to the person who uh, submitted that question. I told them that this would kind of be the answer that they could expect for tonight. See, I got two questions out of the way, just like that. The third question that I was given tonight, what does the Bible say about tattoos? If you would, turn to the book of Leviticus with me. The book of Leviticus and chapter nineteen, in verse twenty-six, in the book of Leviticus, chapter nineteen, and verse twenty-six, you have uh, Moses, and he is talking about some of the things that go on in the pagan religions of the day. And he warns about some of the things that ought not to be done. And he does warn about these things, and it only mentions here, uh, the only place, at least in the New American Standard Bible, Only place that you can find the mentioning of tattoos is here in the book of Leviticus, beginning in verse 26. You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. You shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. You continue on down to verse 31. Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. In the the context here, as you can see, Moses is teaching the children of Israel to avoid things that are associated with pagan rituals. Especially these pagan rituals that are associated with uh, the dead. uh, Or... Funeral type of uh, customs. It, it seems to really be the emphasis uh, from a lot of commentators and things like that that you see. And since we are no longer under the law of Moses, it, I think it is extremely, extremely difficult to argue that getting a tattoo is sinful. We know that Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. Uh, t- teaches that the law of Moses was nailed to the cross. And this is the only passage that you have the mentioning of tattoos. Now we are under the law of Christ and the New Testament it just does not speak about getting a tattoo. It does not mention it being wrong or sinful. It does not mention it in any way, shape, or form. So I think kind of what we need to ask is, is it wise to get a tattoo? That's a whole other kind of question. But is it wise to get a a tattoo? What will our influence be among other people? Those kinds of things might be necessary for discussion. And if you are convicted that getting a tattoo is wrong or sinful, then I would highly suggest what the Bible says is don't get one. In Romans chapter 14 and in verse 23, uh, or, or backing up to verse 22, it says, "...the faith which you have have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin." And the whole chapter in Romans chapter 14 is dealing with the question of personal judgment, personal opinions. In chapter 14 uh, and verse 1, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. That there might be some things that you have an opinion about that are rooted in your understanding of Scripture, but is not explicit in Scripture we have to be careful that we don't bind where God has not bound. So we have to respect what God has said or what God has not said about certain things. And so if you are of the persuasion and the conviction that getting a tattoo would be wrong or sinful or that it would hurt your your influence in trying to teach your friends and your neighbors, then don't get one. I would refrain from that. Another question I was given. Is, we know that we need to repent to be forgiven. And if someone sins against us and they do not repent, must we forgive them? And I got excited about this question. I thought this was... A really good question, and one that can be misunderstood, sadly. In Matthew chapter 18, in Matthew the 18th chapter, Jesus was dealing with the subject of forgiveness. In in Matthew chapter 18, and in verse 21, Jesus he or. You have Peter coming to Jesus and it says, Peter came and said to Him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against Me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? You have to just love Peter here, right? He's like, there's a limit, right? Jesus, there's a limit to how often I have to forgive somebody. Jesus said to him, verse 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. It's like... Let's just burst that bubble right away that you have, Peter. You're going to have to multiply this by a lot more. And Jesus is is actually not, I don't believe He's actually trying to impose a number on that should be taken literally of how, how many times we can forgive someone and then, oh, after that last time, nope, I don't have to forgive you anymore. That's it's not what Jesus is doing. He's using hyperbole here. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul, he teaches us something about love. And particularly how we love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5 that love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Think about that phrase that love does not take into account a wrong suffered, that we're not going to hold a grudge against someone. That love for my brother or sister, it requires that I don't hold that against them. But. The question is not just simply about forgiveness, is it? It's about what if someone does not repent? What if they have sinned against me and they haven't repented? Are we still obligated to forgive them? And so just some things about the question that I find fascinating with this subject is that it's not just about the unlimited nature of forgiveness or how often we ought to forgive, neither is the question just about our willingness to forgive. The question is about conditions being met before granting forgiveness. I think it's beneficial to look at God as an example in forgiveness. If you would turn with me to the book of Psalms, in Psalm 86. In Psalm 86... And In verse 15, David says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. David is acknowledging God's character, that he is a God of compassion and mercy and and forgiveness and grace. If you go back to verse 5, he says, But you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. That hey, God is always ready to forgive. In the book of 1 Timothy, we learn that there in 1 Timothy chapter 2, In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 3, Paul says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God, He's ready to forgive. He wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. And yet what we also recognize is that God requires certain things to be done in order to receive forgiveness. In Peter or 2 Peter chapter 3, another passage that affirms God's redemptive love. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We know in Acts chapter 2 and 38 that Peter said, Those who would repent and were baptized, they would be the ones who received the forgiveness of sins. There were conditions that had to be met. In Acts chapter 8, when Peter was talking to Simon the sorcerer, he told him to repent and pray that the thought of his heart would be forgiven. So what you see in all these passages is that God wants people to be saved. He's ready to forgive. But there are conditions that must be met. Conditions are not a matter of willingness. Conditions become more a test of sincerity on the part of the one seeking forgiveness. And so God does not forgive everyone. I think we understand that because some refuse His offer of salvation. Just thinking about a couple of examples in the book of Acts. You have Felix. He was just waiting for Paul to bribe him even though Paul was uh, was preaching to him and trying to reason with him. Felix was just waiting for a bribe. Or Agrippa. We remember Agrippa, don't we? Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Those men, they... If they did not change their attitudes, then God did not forgive them. So God is always ready to forgive us. And God does forgive us when we meet the conditions of obedience. Repentance, confession, baptism, prayer, whatever those conditions might be. And whatever situation we might find ourselves in. So turning back to the question at hand, do I have to forgive someone? If they have sinned against me. And if they have not repented, in Luke chapter 17, in Luke chapter 17 and in verse 3, this is Luke's account of where we began in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 18. In Luke chapter 17, in verse 3, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. You see, there's a condition that Jesus gives there. And if someone has sinned against you, and if they repent, if, that word if, that's a it implies condition that must be met. A condition that must be met. If they repent, then you forgive them. In verse 4, and if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, you forgive him. So what we see is that our forgiveness, it takes the shape and the pattern of God's forgiveness. I think a question in in this discussion, and there, there may be some disagreement with, with me on some of this, but I think a question that needs to be answered is, why would Jesus require us to forgive an impenitent sinner whom God has not yet forgiven? If someone is in sin and they have not received forgiveness from God, why would I be required to forgive them? Now, remember, and don't misunderstand me, that's not saying that I'm unwilling to forgive them. God is always ready and willing to forgive. And we need to take that into our heart. We need to have a heart that's ready to forgive. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, that we are not going to hold that as a grudge against them. But we need to be ready to forgive. And while we may not offer forgiveness to someone in that we say, okay, everything is right and restored and there's nothing that that we're just going to ignore it. Just because we may not offer forgiveness to someone who has not repented, we are still obligated to them. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 that we need to seek to restore someone. If someone is lost and in sin, if someone has sinned against me, then I don't get to just say, well, for, forget you, and I'm going to write you off. No, I have a responsibility to them. In Galatians 6 and verse 1, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. In Matthew chapter 18, in the passage that we looked at a little while ago, in Matthew chapter 18, just before Peter came asking about how many times do I have to forgive my brother, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 18 and in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. And you know what? You see there? If someone sins, if your brother sins and sins against you, do you get to just say, oh, well, they they sinned against me. They better come apologize. Is that what we get to do? Is that what Jesus says? Mm-mm. What does He say? If someone has sinned sinned against you, you go to them. That means we have to swallow our pride, doesn't it? (laughs) We have to go to them. We have to take initiative. And we have to point out how they have sinned and how they have erred against us. And if they listen to us, if they repent, then we have gained a brother. If they don't, He tells us what to do. Further, that we take witnesses with us, and it's all about trying to restore that brother, trying to be able to forgive them. And so we have to take some initiative in that. I think we might have time for one more question tonight. Why did God wrestle with Jacob? Was it really God? It baffles me because God could have won in an instant, but they wrestled all night. What is the significance of this? This is a a tough one. Uh, I won't lie. In the book of Genesis, in chapter 32, where we read of the account where Jacob spends all night wrestling with this unknown figure. In Genesis chapter 32, and in verse 24, it says, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose up upon him just as he crossed over Penuel and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. And so you you read this passage and it is a bit of a mystery, isn't it? That who is this man that Jacob wrestles with? Jacob says he saw the face of God and lived. So I believe you can say that the man was God, that God appeared in some human form here to Jacob. And this man, God, blessed Jacob and changed his name. This uh, was a momentous occasion where Jacob does receive a blessing from the Lord. And while this is a very strange kind of episode, I do think it is foreshadowing Israel's relationship with the Lord. Because here, Jacob is not just representing Jacob any longer, he's becoming, his name is Israel. He is going to be representing Israel. And in the book of Hosea, and I think this is critical, helping us understand this, this. And maybe this seems like a pretty big jump that Jacob doesn't just represent Jacob anymore, that he represents the whole nation. Well, there's not a nation of Israel. He just has you know, 12 sons. But in the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 12, Hosea, an inspired prophet of God. He says in verse 2, The Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel and in his maturity he contended with God. So you see that Hosea is talking about Israel and Judah and how they have sinned and how they have departed from God's ways. And how God was going to punish them for that. And then he talks about Jacob as being this deceiver, this one who would take his brother's heel as Jacob did whenever he was born. And in his maturity, he continued with God. He wrestled with the Lord. That in Genesis chapter 32 and here in Hosea, we see that since Jacob didn't really win this match, he fought with God and the wrestling match wasn't really a tie since God could have hurt Jacob and he did dislocate his thigh, that God could have done a lot more than that. And I think the point is that Jacob and the nation of Israel Both needed to learn that their life and their existence was because of God's grace and mercy. Jacob needed to learn that on a personal level in the book of Genesis. You think about where Jacob had been in his life. He had been this one who had deceived his own family. He had taken the birthright from his brother. He had deceived his father. He was mischievous but God is giving him the promises of Abraham. Why Jacob? Why? Why would God make that promise to Jacob? To this corrupt guy? And what Jacob needs to learn is that it's not by his own power, but it's by God's grace. It's by God's own forgive, mercy and grace and forgiveness that He exists and that He has life and that He has these promises. The promises were not earned. And the nation of Israel, by the time you get to Hosea's day, they needed to learn the same principle. That they, if they're going to continue to live in the promised land, it's going to be by God's grace, not because they deserved it. In Hosea chapter 12 and verse 4, yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel and there he spoke with us. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is His name. Therefore return to your God, observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. The nation of Israel needed to be reminded of Jacob and that wrestling match. Because that was a moment in which Jacob was also learning his dependency upon God. The promises of God, being able to live in the promised land, it was going to be by God's grace that he met success. So, as we... Draw this to a close this evening. Questions are a very good thing. Questions are very helpful. In our Scripture reading, we had in Acts chapter 2, we had a question. In verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? In Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16 and in verse 30. When Paul and Silas were in prison, the jailer came before them after that earthquake. He said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Questions are important because because questions deserve a response especially questions that pertain to matters of eternal salvation and in both of these passages of scripture in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 16 we see that there were answers that were given In Acts chapter 16 and verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And those are not contradictory answers. They are answers that are to be harmonized and brought together because in Acts chapter 16, you see that jailer who had beaten Paul and Silas, he takes them that very hour of the night, and he washed their wounds. He washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized. He acted upon the answers. Tonight, as a result of our study together and the questions that we have Answers that we've been trying to search for the Scriptures. It's not just about gaining knowledge. It's about how do we put this into practice. And tonight, if there are any questions that you have pertaining to what you must do to become a Christian, to become a child of God, and we hope that you will not hesitate to respond to the answers that are given in Scripture. That we want to encourage you to respond in obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, tonight, if you're not yet a Christian, you need to become a child of God. If you will come in faith, repent of your sins, and be baptized... We would encourage you to do that. And it is, if it is that you have made that commitment to following the Lord, but you've not been faithful in your commitment to following Christ, then we'd encourage you to make things right with the Lord. Repent and pray that God might forgive you. And we're here to help you and encourage you in whatever way we possibly can. If you're subject to the invitation, we encourage you to come as we stand and as we sing.